right, good morning, church. So glad to be here. You know, one of the things, we kind of discussed this a little bit in small group this morning, is there are passages sometimes in Scripture that are no fun to preach, right? There are topics that are in Scripture that are sometimes no fun to preach. Today's kind of one of those, right? And you can, you can make a choice as a, as, a, as a believer in the Word and as a believer of God. You can, you can make a choice. You can skim it, glance and go, or you can take the time and preach it. Well, Chris and I made a decision when we came together as elders and we were working in a church, like, we're going to preach it. It's part of the reason why we do what we do. It's why we take a whole book of Scripture and we go through verse by verse or as much verse by verse as we can. Or we take a section like the Sermon on the Mount and we go through piece by piece the way we can because there are topics as uncomfortable as it may be to preach them that are important and they're in the Word and they are the Word of God and they need to be heard and they need to be proclaimed. And so we're going to be doing that today. So you're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 verses 31 and 32. And then I'll have you put a thumb there and we're going to jump a little bit over to Matthew 19 verses 3 through 9. Uh, as we kind of look at that too. But let's hear the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus preaching here, and he says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right. So stick your thumb there, and if you can jump over to Matthew 19. Verses 3 through 9. I found it interesting as I was studying and prepping for this that Jesus preaches almost the same little message here twice. This time he's to the Pharisees. And in chapter 19, verse 3, he says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said... Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, then why did Moses, why then did Moses get command one to, to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart? Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just come to you thanking you so much for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for this time we have to be in your word and to worship you through the hearing of your word and through the proclamation of your word. And Father, I pray... Also, that we are able to worship you through the response to this word. Father, this is a tough passage. And this is a difficult topic. And I pray for me that I handle it well. Uh, I pray that as we come out of this, we see that there is grace in you. And there is mercy to be given. And I pray, Lord, that even though this is a difficult topic and a difficult subject, that you would still deal in our hearts, drawing us closer to you letting us see your light through your word. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Divorce is tough, 
right? We know it's tough. We know it's hard on families. We know it's hard on churches. We know that it is a difficult, difficult subject to deal with. Sometimes even through, through much counseling and, and efforts for, for reconciliation, divorce still happens. And when it happens, we need to be cautious in how we acknowledge it. Um, it it's not something to be celebrated. Uh, it, it, it is two people who are both image bearers of God, and, and they have severed a union between one another, and they've broken a covenant between one another and God. And, and this is reason to grieve. And we should, we should grieve for that couple, and we should grieve with that couple. We should grieve for their families and with their families. And, and today, as, as we preach through the Sermon on the Mount, we, we come to, to Jesus' teachings on divorce. And it's tricky, and it's tough. But I did find it interesting that as I look at the Sermon on the Mount, I, I do personally find it very intriguing, and this was kind of hinted at a little bit in, in small group this morning, that Jesus places his teaching on divorce right between the topic of lust and taking oaths and retaliation. That, it, that it's right there, that this, this, this idea that, that it's all right here kind of together, he places it right there where he does. Like, so we have this idea of a cavalier approach to oaths and covenants and promises and not guarding our heart against lust. And we all know that that's a major role player in divorce in our society. And apparently, it was a major role in divorce in Jesus' society as well. I believe it was Solomon in Ecclesiastes that said that, you know, things never really change much, right? It's all the same. It's also important here to notice that Jesus teaches about divorce twice in Matthew's Gospel. We read that in Matthew 19 about the Pharisees trying to catch Jesus in this debate about divorce, right? But what was beautiful is that his response was so consistent. Well, he's God. It's going to be good and consistent because our God is good and consistent, and that's who Jesus is. But it was the same thing. There's only one biblical reason that Jesus is giving here for divorce, and it was a big deal in Jesus' time, and it's still a big deal in our time. Now, it is weird, though, because we think about 21st century America, and we think about no-fault divorce, and we think that, well, this was first century Israel. There wouldn't have been widespread divorce in first century Israel. That's, that doesn't make any sense to our heads. It, that was an antiqu an, antiquated society, and they had high moral standards, and nobody would have done any of this stuff. But we go back and we actually look at the historical record Divorce was much more widespread in first century Israel than we imagine. Within just the Hellenistic Roman society, um, who were the captors of Israel at the time, right? They were the occupying forces. Many marriages were, were really more of a common law cohabitation than a formalized marriage. And for them, divorce simply meant just to literally walk out. The husband doesn't come home one day and he's not home for a week. Well, we must be divorced. Right? Wife doesn't come back from going out to, to, the, to the market. She doesn't come back for a week. Well, we must be divorced. That was kind of how the Romans viewed marriage and divorce. They kind of were free. We really dig into Roman society at this time and era, and we see, oh, well, there's a lot more freedom than we want to discuss in a sermon on divorce, right? And how they behaved. But even among observant Jews in Jesus' time, divorce was common, and it was simple. Like we, we think today, you know, oh, no-fault divorce in the United States, it's real easy to get. 
Well, it may have been a little bit easier to get one in Jesus' time in Israel than it is here in the United States now. It's weird to think. There were three big schools of thought on divorce at Jesus' time. Three different prominent rabbis addressed the issue. Shammai was, was a rabbi at the time, and his thought process was, a man may not divorce a wife unless he has found some unchastity in her. Shammai was going along with what Jesus is saying here, right? Unless there's some sort of sexual immorality, there should not be any grounds for divorce. Okay. Then there was this rabbi Akiba, and Akiba says that a man may divorce his wife even if he found favor, or if, I'm sorry, Akiba says that he may, a man may divorce his wife even if he found another fairer than she. I, I don't know the definition of fairer than she, typically, but it's probably like, ooh, I like that model better than last year's, right? It's kind of, kind of a looking around, doing a little shopping kind of concept. Akiba's ideas were kind of wrapped up into the ideas of Halil. And Halil had kind of the most loose definition for the grounds of divorce and his definition and his thought on divorce was becoming the most prominent thought on divorce and practice among the Jews, even at the time of Jesus. And we see this. So some of the reasons that Halil gave grounds for divorce, these are not limited to these, but these are just some of them. If your wife has a unibrow, you know, the, the one eyebrow that gets a little thick across the top all the way, that was grounds for Halil to say that you, had to divorce, you, could, you could divorce your wife for her. Or if her eyebrows weren't quite thick enough, you could divorce her, according to Halil. I don't know what his deal was about eyebrows, but this guy was really intent on the eyebrow situation. I find that a little peculiar. If she had watery eyes, ladies, watch out for allergy season. The rabbi Halil says that is grounds for divorce. I don't. He does. Okay. The one that really got me is if she had an Audi belly button. That is something that no one has control over. Right? This, is, this is how the, the, the tube is tied, your umbilical cord when you're an infant. But if, if your wife had an Audi belly button and you discovered that, you could have grounds for divorce according to Rabbi Halil. Bony knees or ankles? He didn't say anything about elbows. You're safe. She's got, I love my wife, but she has got the pointiest elbows in the middle of the night. As any woman, I have any woman. I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> She's the only one I know, but those elbows are pointy. They're like razor blades. <laughs> the other one was swollen feet. I don't know. These are, these are just some of the lists. The, the, the actual research that I looked at and saw his list was about a page and a half of reasons of frivolous silly reasons like this that a man can divorce a woman. And I agree, they are stupid, right? Some other reasons that he gave is if, if she visited her parents too frequently or if her parents moved too close to you, she, you could get divorced from her. And he could divorce her if she went off her diet or if she burnt his dinner. There are all these stupid reasons. And he had these rules about intimacy within the marriage, um, about how often a wife should be intimate with her husband, daily if the husband had time for it. If he was a day laborer and was coming home tired, then it should be at least twice a week. 
If the husband was a camel driver and taking the camels, when you think like camel driver, it was kind of the Israel's version of the Wild West. You're taking like a cattle drive. But as soon as he came home every 30 days, he was supposed to be intimate. If he was a sailor, then it had to be six months. And I'm thinking about cattle drives, and I'm thinking camel drives, I'm thinking sailing voyages. These things are going to last more than 30 days, or these sailing trips may last more than six months, meaning that, a, that he's saying a man can divorce a woman for not keeping obligations that are potentially impossible for her to keep. Ridiculous, foolish, frivolous reasons for divorce. And yet the people of Israel were saying, sure, this sounds okay to me, right? This is kind of the question that the Pharisees asked, right? We go back to 19. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're asking about Halil and his teachings as a rabbi, which was any cause. And according to the Mishnah, which is this collection of rabbinical teachings, a certificate of divorce that they talk about here, right? Um, the certificate of divorce that, that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 5 as well as in Matthew chapter 19 was simply a letter written by the husband stating, and this is how it kind of reads in the Mishnah, Lo, thou art free to marry any man. Put that on a post-it note. Have his signature on it, and that's your significant that's your signature divorce. No priests, no judges, no no law involved, no separation of property. Just I'm done. Go away. And Jesus is saying, No. Y'all that's silly. See, it really, when I look at this, this idea of this no-fault divorce would have been so easy to obtain. It's too easy to obtain. And this is why Jesus has to address this issue, is that people were doing it. We look at these two passages. Jesus is going to touch, teach several things about marriage. Okay. That it's not just teaching about divorce. He's teaching about marriage here as well. And one of them is that God's plan for marriage is that it's one man and one woman until death. The, the running gag at our house is when something is, is annoying or silly or we're just like, ugh, I can't believe we're in each other's way in this moment is, and we said this till death do us part. Right? That's, that's our joke. We mean that in a loving, joking manner, but we understand the reality of that is just that. That's our plan. When, when Leah and I got married 12 years ago, we decided it was going to be forever, right? She's a better shot than I am, so I, I know I've got to be careful of these things kidding again, honey. I love you. <laughs> but, but it's the truth. This is till death. When Jesus is, is in Matthew chapter 19 and he says in verse 6, what therefore God has joined, let not man separate. He's taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. When God is saying, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Don Carson reminds us in his teachings as he's preaching on these things that, that these are some of the very first principles that we see in the beginning, right? That there was one man, one woman, and they were joined together. And while they were in the garden, divorce was an inconceivable idea. 
There was no allowance for it because it wasn't God's design. The second thing we see here is that, is that Jesus teaches us that sexual immorality is what constitutes biblical grounds for divorce. God's plan for marriage is till death do us depart, but divorce may be permissible, permissible under one circumstance that Jesus is teaching about here, and that's sexual immorality. And Jesus brings up divorce here on the Sermon on the Mount right after he teaches about lust and adultery. And that phrase for sexual immorality here that's translated sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, right? And at this time, the word porneia meant any kind of sexual relationships with anyone other than your spouse during the betrothal time or during your marriage, right? It held all sorts of kind of vile connotations, incest, molestation, homosexuality, prostitution, indecent exposure, Porneia has this wide range of sexual behaviors, and none of those sexual behaviors are pleasing unto God. Next, he says that divorce and remarriage without biblical grounds constitutes adultery. And this is tough. In 532, he says, but I say to you that everyone, and he's addressing everyone here, right? Outside of sexual immorality within marriage, divorce is sinful and it's going to lead to more sin, is what he's getting at. Okay. Women in the first century kind of needed a husband to survive. They couldn't own property. Uh, it could be willed to them if they had died, but it had to be willed to them from the husband. And that was even in rare occasions. We read in Scripture all over where it's supposed to be the, res the responsibility of the oldest son to make sure that his mother is cared for because that was, that was the custom of the day. And that was actually within the law of the day. So a woman who is divorced has no means of caring for herself. And if she's divorced with children and the children are sent with her, she has no means of caring with, for the children. If a man divorces his wife without biblical reason in this time period, he is forcing her into a situation of adultery where she's going to have to remarry or have to do something to provide. Also, if that man marries a woman who is divorced without biblical reason, he is then guilty of adultery as well. If sexual immorality has occurred, then the divorce and the remarriage are not considered adultery. But when the sexual immorality does occur, the one flesh union is broken. And that's the important thing we're looking at here, is, is that, that that one flesh union breaks. It, it, it falls apart. Jesus is teaching that in God's eyes, marriage is this lifelong commitment, that it's a covenant that should not be sullied, should not be broken, should not be dissolved. But when sexual immorality occurs, the bond there is broken. And the innocent party biblically here, can remarry. Notice I said can. Isn't has to. Isn't a must. It's not even a can file for divorce situation. We're going to get into that too. It's not a must or a has to. Okay. Continuing on, he talks about the Old Testament law, about that certificate of divorce. So the Old Testament law on, on divorce was designed to protect women from frivolous divorces like we're seeing Halil talk about or even what the, the Pharisees are looking at. Can the man divorce on any grounds? 
And it's also to protect them from slanderous accusations. And this comes way back into Deuteronomy. We're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And it says in that passage, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor in his if she then finds no favor in his eyes, because she has found he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of the house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband or first husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. It's really wordy in Deuteronomy. A lot of Deuteronomy is really wordy. But this is the Old Testament law regarding divorce. It's the law that in Matthew 19, the Pharisees use to uphold their kind of idea and their view of divorce. It's really what we would call now today an example of case law, right? The law forbids the first husband to take his wife back after she's been divorced or widowed a second time. Now, this is, this is kind of confusing to 21st century readers. I get that. I, I spent an hour and a half just trying to figure out Deuteronomy chapter 24 here in, in looking at some of this. But I want you to kind of have to put yourself in the position of someone in the ancient Near East. Husbands were given a dowry price to take a wife, right? If he then found the indecency, now that indecency is a word vague enough to kind of mean trivial grounds or frivolous grounds, um, in her, then he got to keep that dowry. He did not return that dowry in the divorce. He got to keep it. When she remarried another, dowry would be given. Okay. If she was able to uh, keep that dowry in the divorce, maybe that husband just decided, no, there wasn't a grounds and I have to give the dowry back to her dad. Or if she was widowed, she would have her dowry back. Then hubby number one can kind of go in and go, ooh, I can now get two dowries for the same woman. And that's kind of the idea there. He's, he's exploiting potentially wealthy divorcees or potentially wealthy widows. And God is forbidding that. This law protects the woman from being exploited by her first husband. The law also reveals the hardened hearts of the people. The law is a concession to those hardened hearts to preserve a minimal level of civility amongst God's people. The Pharisees here, this is so irksome. The Pharisees here are not really appealing to God's word. They're appealing to a concession God gave when the people refused to hear his word. That's what's happening as they're talking about this divorce situation. They're making an appeal to a concession made with sinful people. Jesus, on the other hand, takes that, puts it upside down, and he appeals to God's creation at the beginning and God's ethical ideal for marriage. 
Jesus, as he's teaching here about divorce in, in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, condemns divorce for frivolous region, reasons. He's saying marriage is sacred. Marriage is divine. It is an ordained institution given to us as a gift from God. Our anniversary was just two weeks ago. And I say every year at our anniversary, Leah is God's best blessing here on earth for me besides Christ. I've been blessed in this relationship. I don't want to take it for granted. I want to make the best of it. I want to live the adventure that God is giving us with her. And I don't see anyone else that I could ever want to do that with. And I treat it that way. And it's important for us to look to it that way. And even when, this is, this is one of the next points, even when there are biblical grounds for divorce, right? somebody has walked out on somebody else, God still then desires reconciliation and restoration. Just because there's been a genuine biblical ground for divorce, divorce is permitted. Okay? But it is never really commanded here. In Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, sexual immorality gives one permission to divorce a spouse, but it does not command or demand a divorce for sexual immorality. But the mindset of the day, even amongst those who held to the idea of Shammai, who said that you only divorce in the grounds of sexual immorality, the mindset of the day was that if sexual immorality had taken place, then a divorce was necessary and it was expected. It was already so much so into the mindset of the people that when Joseph, the early earthly stepfather of Jesus, learned about Mary's pregnancy, he sought to divorce her. Right? Matthew 1.19 says, and, and her husband, Joseph, being a, man, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Well, she's pregnant. I've not been with her. I'm, I'm around enough Livestock to know there's only one way to get pregnant. Remember, the angel had to come to Joseph and say, no, 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 this is different. <laughs> this is unique. This is a holy work of God. She is conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a different baby in there than what you think. That's not your standard baby, right? And, and that was the only way that Joseph was, was convinced to stay. This is a God of reconciliation wanting to work reconciliation in the lives of his people. So he's, he's, he's such a beautiful God of reconciliation. And his gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. And it's God's desire to see people reconciled and restored to him. It's God's desire to see marriages reconciled and marriages restored. Marriages that are, that are reconciled and restored give God glory. And it shows this amazing picture of how our God takes brokenness and makes things new. Through the gospel, God delights in putting broken lives back together. And through that exact same gospel, God delights in putting broken marriages and broken homes back together. The other thing that Jesus teaches us here is that those who are guilty of adultery should repent and actively seek God's standards for marriage. Now, we've heard the saying, the past is prologue, that, that, that meaning we can't go back in time and, and fix our past. And I'm going to tell you, there are a ton of things. If I, could, if I had a time machine, 
If there were a, a DeLorean sitting out there that would, would take me back in time and I got 88 mile an hour, there's a lot of things I would try to fix in my life. But we can't. We can't go back in time and fix anything. But here's what we can do. We can repent of our sin and we can start new. And we look at, at Jesus' teaching about adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart in Matthew 5, 28. Right? Y'all, that implicates every one of us in, a, in the sin of adultery. It does. I, I, I can't figure out any other way that it doesn't implicate us all. Because it's a heart condition rather than an action. And that heart condition is going to require repentance. And our God is good and gracious to forgive confessed sin. Be faithful in your marriages today and beyond today. Right? It's a commitment that lasts this entire earthly life. Don't excuse your sins of the past, but repent of them. Seek reconciliation. Seek restoration as much as you are able. Seek that out. Commit daily to being a faithful spouse. Dedicated to faithfulness. Dedicated to fidelity. Show off to the world the difference a Christ-centered marriage looks like. Move forward daily. Grateful for the grace that God has given you. Grateful for the forgiveness God has given you. Grateful for the mercy that God has given you. Understand that this is, this is what it is. That, that when we see marriage, that it's reflective of something so much bigger. Jesus expects divorce to be the rare exception and not the rule amongst his believers and his followers. Divorce has become very cavalier within our society. I, I heard phrases like starter husband or starter wife. Right? Like it's, like it's your first car. And it's supposed to be junky and not work. Well, I disagree. I look at Scripture, my Lord disagrees. Marriage is a deep commitment and should be treated as deep commitment. As followers of Christ, we've been made new in Him. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's this supernatural power that comes only from Him that helps us remain faithful. And it's the Holy Spirit helping us honor and live up to our marriage vows. We can only do this because of the indwelling of the Spirit. We can only do this because Christ has made us new. We've been reconciled to God, and because of this, we are continually to seek reconciliation. We're not to seek out separation. We're not to seek out divorce. Leah wakes up every morning knowing that she's going to have to reconcile to me, and I have to reconcile to her every day because I'm a big, nasty sinner saved by grace. She's a sinner saved by grace. I'm going to go into the big, nasty part of it because that's more me on, than her. right? But that's how it is. We've been reconciled to God. And because of this, we need to continually seek out that reconciliation amongst ourselves, to God, and amongst our relationships. This is God's command, and it's God's will for us. 
This is our daily pursuit. And it's our daily pursuit until death do us part. Now, I want you to understand that this is, this is not the end-all, this is not the be-all, this is not the comprehensive sermon on marriage and divorce. Hear me out on this. This isn't even the only time that Jesus himself teaches about marriage and divorce. It's not the only time in the New Testament that we see marriage and divorce taught about. I am not an expert on marriage, and I am not an expert on what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. To be honest with you, I'm such a not expert on marriage that most days I'm not even convinced that I'm really good at being married yet. I'll be honest. Right? Sometimes when we get into Scripture, there's more questions that come to our mind than answers sometimes. One of the questions I didn't address today is this one. What if I'm in an abusive marriage? Church, hear me. That is an important question. And you're right, I didn't get into it. And I would love to get into it, but I don't have time here and today to get into it. Jesus isn't talking about a marriage that's divorcing because there's abuse in this particular passage. That's not his, his target that he's talking about. Jesus is specifically addressing frivolous divorces for no real reason. Abuse is not frivolous, and I don't take it to be frivolous. If you're in a situation, whether you're in the room, you're listening online, wherever you're at, if you're in a situation or you know someone in that situation, please seek safety for yourself and any children that are involved, first and foremost. We want you to be safe. I'm getting a t-shirt that I saw that's a teacher t-shirt for those of us that teach, and it says, I ain't no snitch, but I am a mandatory reporter. And I mean that. I want to help somebody who's in an abusive situation out. Leah and I will, will do whatever we can do to make sure that you're there. Jamie and Chris will do whatever they can do to make sure that you are safe because we want you safe to know that you are loved by a God and a creator in his church who wants to care for you. We will get you that safety. We'll work details out afterward. But if you're in that situation, know that we want you safe. I also know that marriage is tough. That marriage is hard. And they lived happily ever after truly is the thing of fairy tales. This is a reason why our, our wedding vows say for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. We are called to stay true during the tough times. Paul reiterates this when he goes into Ephesians. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I get this. I understand that this is a difficult topic. I also understand that we are all sinful and rebellious people and that we have rebelled against God and His truth. And because of that, we deserve death and eternal separation from His favor. But the beautiful thing is, is there's nothing here that God can't reconcile and can't fix. His grace is so much bigger, and His love is so much bigger than that. God loved His people that He created so much 
that he designed a way for the rebel to become a saint. Jesus, who is God in human flesh, came and lived among us, and in his life here on earth, he fulfilled all of the law of God, something you and I cannot do. And then he has done for us what we could never do, and he rescues us from our own sin. He takes our sin, he takes our shame, and he places it on the cross with his body. And he willingly pays for that sin by sacrificing himself for our sake. But he didn't stay dead. Jesus was then raised from the dead and he provided a way for us to be rescued and restored and to be put in right relationship with God. When we admit our sinfulness, we stop trusting in ourselves and our power. When we ask Jesus to forgive us and rescue us, he brings in a new life to us and he begins to work in making us new creatures. God, through Jesus, renews all aspects of our lives. He takes the brokenness and mends it and starts to heal it. And it's only through Jesus that we can have these reconciled relationships, these fixed problems. It's only through him that we can go in the grace that he offers. If you've not surrendered your life over to Jesus, man, I encourage you to do so. If you've got issues you want to talk about within your marriage, talk to Leah or Jamie or I. If you know that there's abuse taking place and you need safety, let us know. But understand that that when we look at this particular topic, we want you to understand what the ideal is, knowing that, that, yes, sometimes that ideal is broken because we live in a broken society. But God's love is bigger than your brokenness. And we hope that as a congregation, as a body, as as leaders within a flock, that the love that he poured in us, our cups overflow with that same kind of love so that you can see it from us as well. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you so much. I thank you even for tough topics in Scripture, things that that are difficult to teach about. Father, we pray that as we we know that we are the bride of Christ and that that's a covenant you want to establish with us for eternity. That we don't want to do anything to harm that. Father, I pray that as as we go from here and we just think about what this is, that we would show the grace that you've shown us so richly to others. You would have us strive to live out the ideal that is the marriage you describe. It is a profound mystery that marriage reflects the idea of Christ and his church. Let us, the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, let us show that profound mystery to others through our own walks and marriages. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.